the National Archives podcast series, Queen Anne's Diplomatic Correspondence and the Arts, presented by Professor James Wynne. Sometime after her long, close relationship with Queen Anne had come to a bitter end, Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, set down on paper some hints toward a character of the Queen, in which she gave the monarch grudging praise for her knowledge of protocol. She has the greatest memory that ever was, especially for such things as are all forms and ceremonies, giving people their due ranks at processions and their proper places at balls and having the right order at installments and funerals. The Duchess was correct about the Queen's close attention to courtly protocol, richly confirmed by the detailed records of christenings, weddings, funerals, court theatricals, royal birthdays, coronations, and state visits held by the National Archives. Though keenly interested in power, money, and prestige, Sarah was impatient with such rituals, which she associated with nostalgia and superstition. Yet I shall contend today that Anne's motives for insisting on proper ceremonies were not merely personal and nostalgic, but often shrewdly political. As a child, Anne witnessed many elaborate courtly rituals, most of them associated with death. In 1667, when she was only two, her four-year-old brother James, Duke of Cambridge, died in the royal nursery at Richmond. His tiny corpse was transported to London in a black-draped royal barge, a ritual repeating the treatment of Queen Elizabeth's body in 1603. As the son of James, Duke of York, brother to King Charles II, the dead boy had been second in line for the throne, and his parents were insisting on his status and theirs by giving him an elaborate burial. Their own clandestine marriage in 1660 had initially been deplored by both families because Anne Hyde, as the daughter of a self-made lawyer, was not considered noble enough to marry the brother of a reigning monarch. Princess Anne's fascination with courtly rituals, which carried over into her reign as queen, may have originated in her family's need to efface this supposed deficiency in their bloodline. In 1668, at the age of three, the little girl went to France to be treated for an eye ailment. At first, she stayed with her grandmother, Queen Henrietta Maria, the widow of Charles I, but the dowager queen, who had long been unwell, died during her visit. So the princess then moved to a nursery kept by her aunt, Charles II's beloved sister, Minette, who also died, quite suddenly, in June of 1670. The widowed monsieur, younger brother to Louis XIV, put his own daughters and their cousin Anne into long trailing mantles of violet velvet so that they could receive formal visits of condolence in the nursery. Princess Anne was five years old. Her cousin Marie-Louise was eight, and the baby, Anne-Marie, was not yet one. Anne's lifelong insistence on the proper observation of mourning may have owed something to this formative experience. Her perfect knowledge of French the language in which most European diplomacy was conducted certainly came from this childhood visit. When the princess returned to England, death followed her. She lost three members of her family in 1671. Her mother died of cancer in March, and in June, her three-year-old brother Edgar, the next Duke of Cambridge, followed his mother to the grave. The remaining infant, Catherine, died of, born a few weeks after before her mother's death, died in December. In addition to witnessing the solemn rites connected with all those royal deaths, Princess Anne, dressed in black and fasting all day, joined her older sister Mary, the court of Charles II, and the nation each year for the annual day of mourning for her grandfather, Charles I, beheaded on 30 January 1649 on a scaffold in front of the Whitehall Banqueting House. 
The princess was also aware of the courtly spectacles associated with royal weddings. Not long after her mother's death, her father, James Duke of York, defiantly displayed his Catholicism by taking a new duchess. His chosen bride, Maria Beatrice of Modena, was an Italian, a Catholic, the goddaughter of Louis XIV, and the grandniece of Cardinal Mazarin, the chief minister to the French king. The Earl of Peterborough, whose daughter was friendly with Mary and Anne, went to Italy to arrange the marriage and stood in for James at a proxy wedding in Modena on 30 September 1673, a few days before the bride's 15th birthday. Hearing the news, the Duke informed his daughters of his second marriage by telling Princess Mary that he had provided a playfellow for her and he was telling the truth. Mary, who was 11, was not much younger than her new stepmother and diplomats had already begun to discuss the match that would join her to her first cousin, William of Orange, who was 23 and fully engaged in political and military affairs of Europe. The new Italian duchess appears to have been the driving force behind the court mass Callisto, performed in February 1675, in which the young ladies of the court acted out an Ovidian fable in rhyming verse, assisted by 90 professional musicians. The purpose of this elaborate theatrical was to present Princess Mary, who played the title role, as available for marriage. And though only 10, also had a substantial part as Nyphi, an attendant nymph. At the end of the mask, Callisto and Nyphi enter under a canopy supported by Africans. You'll see that in the stage direction there. In real courtly ceremonies, such as coronations, royal persons appeared under canopies. So the staging of this scene stressed the royal status of the princesses, their African attendants, actually professional singers in blackface, were meant to call attention to their father's position as governor of the Royal African Company, which was active in the slave trade. As the nymphs are about to be translated to heaven as stars, a singing shepherdess tactlessly points out that this supposed honor has unnaturally deprived them of sexual pleasure. Must these be stars and to heaven remove before they have tasted the pleasures of love? That the gods so ill such beauty should use, what mighty cost must Shanastia lose? But before the promised apotheosis can take place, Jupiter intervenes, not in order to give the nymphs an opportunity for pleasure, but in order to oblige two kings, binding them to loyalty through arranged marriages. With each of you, I can oblige a throne, I'll keep you then to grace some favorite crown. On that design, you here shall still remain. The world of the mask is a fantasy, as Jupiter, played in male dress by Henrietta Wentworth, reminds us by promising to dissolve into a nymph again. But in the real world, as in this theatrical episode, royal virgins were pawns in diplomacy, prizes with which a king might oblige a throne. Although Mary wept for two days when informed of her betrothal, she dutifully married the diminutive and asthmatic William in a ceremony held in her bedchamber in 1677, at which Anne was almost certainly present. At this point, the younger princess had every reason to expect that she too would be married to some appropriately royal mate at about 15, thus gaining an independent establishment and the status of an adult woman. A recently rediscovered portrait by Lely dating from about 1678, reflects her liminal situation. It shows a girlish Anne making a garland of flowers, a traditional for emblem for innocence. Hidden in the background, however, is another me message, 
The figures on the wine ewer behind the seated princess are minads dancing in celebration of Bacchus, figures of fertility reminding the viewer that the subject will soon reach the age her culture thought appropriate for marriage. In the very year in which Lely painted this picture, a Prussian diplomat suggested a match between Anne and Georg Ludwig of Hanover, later George I of England, only to have Georg's mother, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, haughtily reply that she was not interested in a princess whose mother had been born into a very mediocre family. A series of political crises, however, delayed the marriage the princess was expecting. Fearful of Catholics in the wake of a supposed plot to assassinate the king, which came to light in 1678, a strong party in Parliament attempted to pass laws preventing Anne's father James from, James from succeeding to the throne. Charles sought to defuse this so-called exclusion crisis by sending James and Maria to Scotland, but he kept Anne in London. On 18 December 1680, at the height of the unrest, a member of Parliament proposed that a motion be made to His Majesty for the disposing the Lady Anne in marriage to a Protestant prince. He was not speaking abstractly. Georg Ludwig of Hanover had arrived in London on 8 December, and after kissing the hem of Queen Catherine's petticoat, a required piece of courtly etiquette, had sought permission to kiss Lady Anne on her lips. By the 28th of December, according to one newsletter, it was all the discourse at court that the Prince of Hanover is to marry the Lady Anne. Yet for reasons that remain maddeningly uncertain, there was no proposal. With the court still preoccupied by the continuing clamor for exclusion, and with the exiled Duke of York unable to assess his daughter's suitor in person, this apparently promising opportunity for Anne to be disposed in marriage slipped away. As the exclusion crisis began to abate, the king allowed his niece to visit her family in Scotland, where she spent nine months. And when they all returned, the court began to consider more seriously the question of her marriage especially after she was discovered receiving poems of courtship from John Sheffield, Earl of Mulgrave, an amateur poet some 20 years her senior. Although Mulgrave was an aristocrat, Charles was determined to oblige some throne with his niece, and an authentically royal suitor was soon found. At 10 p.m. on the evening of 28 July 1683, the 18-year-old Anne married Prince George, younger brother of the reigning King of Denmark in the brightly lit Tudor Chapel in St. James's Palace. Her uncle Charles, claiming his royal prerogative, gave away the bride. The chiefest of the nobility were in attendance. The king and queen ate a celebratory supper with the newlyweds. Bells and bonfires signaled public joy, and the bride was splendidly arrayed, having received a number of expensive jewels as presents from her bridegroom. On the day of the wedding, Anne's father wrote to his niece, the Countess of Litchfield, telling her that the king and queen will both be there and I believe will stay at St. James's till they are bedded. In light of the need for Protestant heirs, the traditional insistence on seeing the new couple bedded took on special urgency. There are, alas, no surviving visual images of the wedding ceremony, though there is an engraving of Anne that presents her as a dewy, desirable bride. But for the next major event in the Stuart court, the coronation of Anne's father as James II, we possess a remarkably detailed set of pictures. Despite earlier attempts to block his succession, James succeeded without incidents when Charles died in 1685 on Anne's 20th birthday. Mindful of the power of ritual in establishing legitimacy, the new king took a personal interest in planning his coronation ceremony. 
According to Francis Sandford, who wrote the official account, His Majesty was pleased to order that the whole ceremony, with all its circumstances, should be printed and illustrated with sculpture, by which he means engravings. Preparing the elaborate illustrations for this large and expensive volume, however, took longer than expected, and it did not appear until 1687, by which times James had lost the support of many of the aristocrats for whom the book was designed. Only 100 copies of Sanford's book were printed, and the retail cost was 100 pounds, about 20,000 pounds in today's money. Perhaps because anyone spending so much for a book would have preserved it, a number of copies survived, giving us lively illustrations of the processional. Anne, who watched the proceedings from a private box she shared with her husband, would have watched the parade begin with the entry of the, the king's herb woman and her six maids with baskets of sweet herbs and flowers strewing the way. You can see that in the little caption. Behind the herb woman, who scattered their petals on the cloth-covered walkway from Westminster Hall to the Abbey, came a full complement of trumpets and drums, and two large choirs, they're the choir boys, as well as aldermen, judges, bishops, and virtually all the peers of the realm and their wives, carefully arranged by rank and costume. According to orders sent out by the Earl Marshal, the robe or mantle of a baroness was to be of crimson velvet, the cape to be powdered with two bars or rows of ermine. Her train was to measure three foot on the ground. See the trains. A viscountess was allowed two rows and a half of ermine and her train of a yard and a quarter. A countess had three rows of ermine and a train of a yard and a half. And a duchess was allowed four rows of ermine and two full yards in her train. The queen and the king, both each under a separate canopy and and no, no, yes, each under a separate canopy and grandly attended came near the end. Here's queen now, now queen Maria Beatrice, and here's the king under his canopy. Everyone was keenly interested in making this coronation as traditional as possible. The religion of the new monarch necessitated adjustments in the liturgy. His grace, the Lord Archbishop of Canterbury, says Sanford, was desired to view the forms of divine service used at former coronations and to abridge as much as might be the extreme length thereof. But length was not the issue. By asking the archbishop to omit, to, to ask for, to create a shorter service, the committee was asking him to omit the Eucharist, conveniently sparing everyone the embarrassment that might have ensued when the Catholic king refused the chalice. With some reluctance, William Sancroft obeyed their instructions. In this ceremony, as in many other cases, the function of elaborate ritual was to discourage or conceal opposition. Yet we may detect some of the unease that many were feeling in the anthem that Purcell wrote for this occasion. In setting the verse asking the congregation to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Purcell used passing dissonances to dramatize a need for prayer that was inwardly felt by many, oh, by many in attendance. I'm gonna let you hear this excerpt now. The 
most dissonant moments in that beautiful phrase occur on the words peace and love, where one might have expected more comforting harmonies. For Anne, as for many others, Purcell's subtle treatment of this passage would have been a reminder of the political dissonances that remained unsolved as James took the throne, not least the question of whether a convinced Roman Catholic could effectively rule a country whose culture was partly defined by demonizing Catholicism. Protocol for the coronation dictated that the princess, now second in line to the throne behind her sister Mary, be an onlooker, not a participant. Neither she nor Prince George marched in the procession, nor were they expected to make a symbolic gesture of assent. Yet with William of Orange refusing to attend the ceremony, Anne was the most prominent Protestant member of the royal family in attendance, and to the delight of many, she was visibly with child. In a departure from the scripted rituals, the Catholic queen, mindful of her condition, honored her stepdaughter by coming over to sit with Anne and George in their box before the recessional. Early in June, the princess delivered a daughter, christened Mary in honor of her sister, who was a godmother in absentia. Sadly, this child and her younger sister, Anne Sophia, born in 1686, both died of smallpox within a week of each other early in 1687. In April of 1689, Anne witnessed another coronation, designed to give official sanction to a coup that had effectively deposed her father and placed her sister Mary and her brother-in-law William on the throne. She probably occupied the same box she had used in 1685, and once again she was pregnant. Many aspects of the ritual were identical. Once more, the herb women, drummers, trumpeters, bishops, and peers processed from hall to abbey in much the same order. Once more, the choir, with different boys, but most of the same men, sang Purcell's splendid introit. These similarities between the two coronations were a way of claiming cultural continuity, despite the fact that this second coronation was the direct result of an armed revolution. The differences were also significant. Archbishop Sancroft was not presiding. Having crowned James II, he could not in conscience crown William and would soon be deprived of his position, joining a number of other clergy as non-jurors, men unwilling to take the oaths to the new monarchs. In his place stood Anne's girlhood chaplain, Henry Compton, Bishop of London. Suspended from his office in 1686 for opposing James II's religious policies, the triumphant Compton had helped Princess Anne escape down the back stairs of Whitehall during the early days of the Revolution. He was delighted to crown the Protestant king and queen. Yet in light of the claim that William had invaded in order to save the church, it was an ominous irony that there were fewer bishops in attendance at this coronation than at the last. According to the diarist John Evelyn, who was present, there were but five bishops and four judges. No more had taken the oaths. Other sources list nine bishops in attendance, but even that number compares poorly with the total of 14 bishops who marched in 1685. Evelyn also noticed that several noblemen and great ladies were absent, and in this assertion he was correct. On the back of a manuscript listing the order of the procession, the scribe set down a kind of score sheet comparing the attendance of aristocrats at the two events. Here's his score sheet transcribed by me. His arithmetic is faulty. The, the, the correct totals are in brackets. But his conclusion is accurate. There were clearly more nobles at James's ceremony than at William's. There was no book comparable to Sanford's record of James's coronation, but one copy of a single-page broadsheet showing the procession, clearly modeled on Sanford's book, survives in the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, thanks to this unique source, 
we know that Prince George, instead of sitting by Anne's side, marched in this procession. There he is, with a train long enough to require an attendant to hold it. His presence in a place of honor was a recognition of the significance of the actions he and Anne had taken in support of the revolution. Instead of appearing under separate canopies, as James and his queen consort had done, William and Mary marched together under a single canopy, a visual representation of the plan to have them rule together, with Mary's status as a queen regnant politely preserving the fiction of a succession. Immediately before the canopy marched three bishops holding the chalice, the paten, and the Bible. The sacrament was an integral part of this ceremony because William was eager to demonstrate his Protestant credentials and his willingness to conform to Anglican practice. This coronation gave ritualized legitimacy to a change of power that actually violated all the laws of succession as Anne certainly knew and may have quietly demonstrated. On 13 February 1689, two months before the coronation, William and Mary were proclaimed at a ceremony in the Whitehall Banqueting House. They took their seats in chairs of state beneath a canopy. Many of those in the room, all of those in the room in fact, were standing, but Anne, as a princess, had the right to be seated in the presence of the new monarch. The servants, however, placed her tabaret, a small stool used on such occasions, too close to Mary's chair so that it was under the canopy of state, and Anne refused to be seated until the stool was moved. This behavior was in keeping with her lifelong attention to protocol and etiquette, but perhaps it was also a small way of distancing herself from the revolution settlement. Although she had shared a canopy supported by Africans with her sisters some 14 years earlier in Callisto, she was careful not to share this canopy. The differences between the sisters soon became apparent in disagreements about liturgical practice. Mary, who had become accustomed to a quiet, pious life in Holland, found the religious services in the English court too formal and ostentatious for her taste. I was come, she confided to her journal, into a noisy world full of vanity, from having public prayers four times a day to have hardly leisure to go twice, and that in such a crowd with so much formality and little devotion that I was surprised. Flexing her muscles as queen, she immediately tried to reform the services at the Chapel Royal, making them simpler, less ornate, less popish. And this reform program brought her into conflict with Bishop Compton, dean of the chapel, and Anne's lifelong spiritual advisor. There was an old custom left since the time of popery, writes Mary, that the king should receive the sacrament almost alone. This had always been observed. This I could not resolve to do, but told the Bishop of London, who I found unreasonable upon that, and would keep up the foolery, but at last I got the better. And the king being of my mind, we resolved to make it a matter of as little state as possible. For Anne, who was accustomed to receiving the sacrament almost alone, who took pleasure in pomp and ceremony, and who counted Compton among her most loyal adherents, the new queen's getting the better of the bishop on this issue was an unwelcome reminder of her own loss of status under the new regime. During the reign of James II, the monarch had worshipped in a splendidly decorated Catholic chapel, which had a separate musical establishment, mostly foreign, while Anglican services, loyally attended by Princess Anne, continued at the Chapel Royal. During those years, Henry Purcell, who was the organist, pleased the princess by composing several symphony anthems, works involving stringed instruments, soloists, and the choir. All too aware of her father's elaborate music in the Catholic chapel, which included an imported Italian castrato, Anne did not want the Anglican services to appear inferior. 
So when Mary, even before the coronation, issued a command banning instruments from the chapel and replacing sung prayers with a spoken liturgy, she was altering a practice Anne had worked hard to sustain. In place of the music that had previously graced the chapel came a second sermon delivered on Sunday afternoon. Mary believed that this innovation pleased most sober people and complained that her sister affected to find fault with everything that was done, especially to laugh at afternoon sermons. Anne's laughter, however, was probably bravado. For the princess, who had provided a focal point for Anglican loyalists by defying her father's attempt to convert her and keeping up her attendance at the Chapel Royal, the new queen's reduction of the musical portion of the morning service was a mortification. The queen and I, wrote Anne to Lady Marlborough in 1691, are of very different humors. Mary's insistence on altering ceremonies dear to Anne was one of the many causes of the ill feeling that developed between the sisters. Finally, with everyone edgy and nervous, the veneer of courtly civility came off. On the evening of 9 January 1692, there was a heated quarrel between Mary and Anne, and the next day William suddenly turned on John Churchill, then Earl of Marlborough, stripping him of all his offices and banishing him from court. Mary had long disliked Lady Marlborough, whom she correctly blamed for her sister's success in gaining an independent financial settlement from Parliament. And she seized this moment to insist that Anne must part with her favorite. Her icily formal letter declaring that Lady Marlborough must not continue with you arrived on 5 February, the day before Anne's 27th birthday. In her immediate reply, Anne begged her sister to recall your severe command, question Mary's motives, and insisted upon her right to retain her beloved Sarah. And I must as freely own, she wrote, that as I think this proceeding can be for no other intent than to give me a very sensible mortification, so there is no misery that I cannot readily resolve to suffer rather than the thought of parting with her. Despite her own keen interest in protocol and propriety, the princess dares to dispute the queen's claim that it would be improper for her to appear at court attended by a woman whose husband was in disgrace, and goes on to allege that her sister's real purpose is to give her a mortification, to cause her pain and put her in her place. Mary's response was decisive. She ordered the Marlboroughs to leave their lodgings in Whitehall. But if the queen thought her sister would capitulate, she underestimated Anne's stated resolve to suffer any misery rather than part with Sarah. Instead of dismissing her favorite, the princess left the palace, moving first to Zion House, which the Duke of Somerset gallantly lent to her, then to Barclay House in Piccadilly, which she occupied as a renter starting in October of 1692. Both these locations brought her closer to Campton Town in Kensington, which she had already rented as a healthy residence for her fragile son, William, Duke of Gloucester, born in 1689. The painful estrangement between the sisters continued until the Queen's death late in 1694. Because of the loss of his wife made his own reign much less popular, William was alert to the political importance of improving his relations with the person next in line to his shaky throne. He was well aware, writes Sarah with her usual cynicism, that everybody who had a mind to show they didn't care for him would certainly do it by making their court to her. Although Anne received the king's conciliatory gestures graciously, her court now became a center for those opposed to the regime. Again, apparently formal rituals were a part of this political process. On 24 July 1695, for example, Anne hosted a party at Windsor for her son's sixth birthday. The anonymous ode for this occasion, set to music by Purcell, 
includes stanzas in praise of the little duke's parents. And the poet's lines on Anne might easily be read as praising the princess at the expense of the king. The graces in his mother shine. Of all the beauties, saints and queens and martyrs of her line, she's great. Let fortune smile or frown. Her virtues make all hearts her own. She reigns without a crown. The stanza's conclusion, she reigns without a crown, reflects the impatience of those who looked forward to Anne's accession. But it was at best tactless and at worst dangerous. And Purcell, aware that this line might be offensive to the king's supporters, said it only once and surrounded it with two longer settings of the previous line, her virtues make all hearts her own, a safer expression of Anne's growing popularity. He devotes 11 measures to the line about Anne's virtues, stretching it out with extensive melismatic treatments of the word all, disposes of the line about reigning without a crown in only six measures, then returns to the words of the penultimate line for another 18 measures. The musical setting thus alters the rhetoric of the poem, moving what had been a climactic and cadential line in the poem into a much less prominent position, as I hope you'll be able to hear. For the remainder of William's reign, Anne conscientiously served as the official hostess for the king's birthdays. On 20 October 1697, for example, she wrote to Sarah seeking advice about how to celebrate William's birthday on 4 November. I writ yesterday to ask your opinion what must be done on the birthday, being unwilling to depend on my own in anything, especially at this time being much more inclined to have a play. But I doubt that will not be so well liked because a ball is reckoned a thing of more respect. And I think I have heard the king does not care for plays. One very good pretense there is for a play, which is the shortness of the time for people's learning to dance, and that it must be put upon if I excuse a ball. Without doubt, there are people that will found fault with mantos, for one must expect every new thing will be delike, disliked at first, the generality of the world disapproving of every fashion that they do not bring up themselves. In this letter, Anne carefully weighs the possible responses of various parties to the birthday plans. She would prefer to import a dramatic production from one of the theaters, but she knows she needs a pretense for doing so. For some who share her de detailed knowledge of protocol, a ball is reckoned a thing of more respect, but if there is to be a ball, people must learn to dance the special figures required. There's also the question of dress. The letter continues with a long discussion of whether mantos rather than gowns would be acceptable attire for the ladies. Without doubt, there are people that will find fault, writes Anne, knowing that those in attendance at such events were sure to be opinionated about her performance as the hostess, reading political meanings into the clothing she wore and the dances she led. Pregnant, lame, and generally unwell, 
she was facing the challenge of hosting a party for a monarch she had many reasons to dislike. Yet she found one humorous outlet for her frustration in feigning ignorance about the king's disdain for the arts. Her seemingly innocent phrase, I think I have heard the king does not care for plays, is a wicked piece of irony designed for Sarah's amusement, though it might seem perfectly harmless if the letter fell into the wrong hands. As both ladies knew, William disliked music, never read literature, and did not once attend the theater during his 13 years on the throne. In July of 1700, Anne suffered the loss of her beloved son, who died two days after his 11th birthday. A year later, her father died in exile, and the continuing tension between the king and the princess found expression in a disagreement about the protocol for mourning him. Aware of Anne's punctiliousness about forms and ceremonies, her political allies knew that her most likely response to the loss of her father, even though she had played a role in the coup that deposed him, would be to put her court into full mourning, an observation that required hanging black draperies in her apartments in St. James's Palace. They also knew that the king, who insisted on being informed of such actions before they were taken, would probably choose a lower level of observance in mourning for the father-in-law he had deposed. Both expectations were correct. A news item dated 15 September reported that Anne's servants had begun to hang the apartments at St. James's Palace with mourning, and on the same day her friend Marlborough, who was in Holland with the king, wrote to the courtier Sidney Godolphin urging him to advise Anne against going into deep mourning. But fully aware of Anne's personal reasons for ordering full mourning, Marlborough feared the political consequences and urged his friend Godolphin to intervene in a series of letters warning of the outcry it would make in England if she were to put her house in mourning. He was asking Godolphin to help Anne understand that her private acts were now inevitably public and political. Godolphin, who was possessed of infinite tact, clearly found a way of telling Anne that she should conform to the king's preference while assuring her of his sympathy for her position. His letter has disappeared, but her reply survives. I cannot let your servant go back without returning my thanks for the letter he brought me and assuring you it is a very great satisfaction to me to find you agree with me concerning the ill-natured, cruel proceedings of Mr. Caliban, which vexes me more than you can imagine and I'm out of all patience when I think I must do so monstrous a thing as not to put my lodgings in mourning for my father. In Anne's interpretation, William has acted like a subhuman Caliban, using his power to make her do a monstrous thing. Yet when William himself died less than a year later, the new queen promptly ordered full-scale mourning for him, taking a brief journey to Windsor so that her apartments at St. James's could be hung with black drapes. Her husband, Prince George, dutifully served as chief mourner at William's funeral. Once William was laid to rest, attention turned to the preparations for the coronation, which gave the new monarch an opportunity to display her fondness for tradition. She chose St. George's Day, 23 April, which had been the coronation day for her uncle Charles II and her father James II, though not for the impatient William. And she meticulously followed all the prescribed rituals, including those omitted in 1685. One, surviving records show the purchase of new liveries for the trumpeters and drummers, including new banners to hang from the trumpets. Even humble and necessary items were elaborate. The Lord Chamberlain, alert to the length of the ceremonies, ordered two large close stools for Her Majesty's service in Westminster Abbey and Westminster Hall. And the Maker's Bill, which is right upstairs, describes these conveniences as covered with crimson velvet and trimmed with gold arrows lace, gilt nails and locks with double pewter pants to each, and leather cases. Anne's weight and gout made it hard for her to walk. 
So she followed the procession down the blue carpet stretching from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey in an open chair. Four strong yeomen of the guard carried the chair with its heavy occupant, and 16 noblemen supported the royal canopy. When she reached the abbey doors, however, the queen alighted and walked down the aisle to the altar. She was willing to endure the pain for the sake of propriety and in order to be closer to her subjects, whom she greeted with obliging looks and bows. That last phrase comes from an eyewitness account of the coronation set down by Celia Fines, a curious and observant young woman who kept a detailed record of her travels. The survival of this narrative is fortunate because there is no detailed pictorial record of Anne's coronation comparable to the one produced by Sandsford for her father's ceremony in 1685, though one crude popular print of the, of the procession survives. And there we see her under her canopy at the end. Fines gives a particularly full description of the queen's appearance. Queen's train was six yards long, the mantle suitable of crimson velvet with ermine as other of the nobility, only the rows of powdering exceeded, being six rows of powdering. Her robe under was of gold tissue, very rich embroidery of jewelry. Her head was well-dressed with diamonds mixed in the hair, which at the least motion brilled and flamed. Fine's testimony also shows that Anne's subjects were alert to the significance of ceremony and capable of comparing this coronation to earlier ones. When describing the ceremonial meal, she provides a comparative history of canopies. The queen being come up to her table, which was a great rise of steps, she was seated on her throne, which was under a fine canopy. When King James was crowned, he sat so. At his left hand sat his queen under another canopy. But King William and Queen Mary, being both principals, sat under one large canopy on one large throne. But our present queen should have sat alone, as she did, in the upper end under the canopy. But she sent and did invite Prince George, her consort, to dine with her. So he came and at her request took his seat at her left hand without the canopy. In keeping with her lifelong attention to form, Anne quite properly sat alone on her throne, enacting the role of the sacred monarch. In her private identity as a wife, however, she invited her husband to join her, but was careful to see that his chair remained outside the canopy, just as she had once insisted on having her own stool moved outside the canopy that covered William and Mary. Once on the throne, the queen sent clear signals that her court would be more focused on ceremonies than William's had been. She restored the royal band, which William had reduced by nearly one-third to its full strength, filled the empty places in the choir of the chapel royal, and revived the practice of touching for the queen, king's evil, which William had scoffed at as a superstition. Some of the ceremonies in her court, such as the celebrations of the new year and of her birthday, took place each year following a set pattern. Others, such as the elaborate Thanksgiving services held to commemorate military victories, followed the course of public events. In neither case was the queen a passive onlooker. She evidently had a hand in choosing the theatrical and opera companies who performed for her on her birthday, and the poets and composers who created the annual odes, including in 1713, George Frederick Handel. She also took an active role in planning the Thanksgiving services. On 2 November 1702, 10 days before the first such service, she informed the Archbishop of Canterbury that she wished to see the form of prayer for the Thanksgiving day before it was sent to the press. And in 1708, she personally chose the words for an anthem composed by William Croft. As late as 1709, she wrote out a prayer in her own hand to be used at a Thanksgiving service for the victory at Malplaquet. There were also state visits. In the War of the Spanish Succession, which Anne declared within a month of her succession, English, Dutch, and German forces backed the Archduke Charles, a younger son of the Holy Roman Emperor, 
in his claim to the Spanish throne, opposing the French who were trying to place Louis XIV's grandson on the same seat. Marlborough and Godolphin, Anne's chief advisors, soon realized that Leopold I, the Habsburg emperor, was unlikely to contribute the troops he was supposed to send, though he did send his son to meet with the Allies and prepare to enter Spain. In need of every battalion he could muster for his campaigns in Flanders, Marlborough fretted about sending English troops to Spain, but he dutifully called upon the young man in Dusseldorf in October 1703, inviting him to visit England over the winter. So it was that Anne, in December of 1703, had to play hostess for a formal visit by the Archduke, who was now referred to throughout the alliance as the King of Spain, or Charles III of Spain. The Duke of Marlborough and the Duke of Somerset, Anne's master of the horse, collected Charles at Spithead on Christmas Day and transported him to Windsor. Prince George, dispatched by his wife to meet them, arrived after a harrowing journey in which his coach overturned on the muddy roads. Perhaps because Charles was only 18 and not yet married, the ceremonies surrounding his visit to Windsor included rituals of courtship and gallantry. Here's a contemporary account. The queen received him with great demonstrations of respect and affection. After he had made his compliment to her majesty, acknowledging his great obligations to her for her generous protection and assistance, he led her majesty into her bedchamber, where the queen presented about 40 ladies of the first quality to his majesty, who saluted them all with a kiss. He supped that night with the queen, who gave his majesty the right hand at table. After supper, he would not be satisfied till after great compliments, he had prevailed upon the Duchess of Marlborough to give him the napkin, which he held to her majesty when she washed. And in returning the same to her grace, his majesty put his diamond ring in it as a mark of his great esteem for that lady. This display of courtly etiquette described here had political motivations on both sides. The would-be king evidently hoped that his gallantry towards Sarah might endear him to her husband, whose military and diplomatic support he desperately needed, while Anne was determined to convince the young Habsburg that her court was as genteel and cultured as any in Europe, and not merely by providing 40 women for him to kiss. The next day she offered her guests an afternoon spent in entertainments of music and other diversions, the court making the most splendid appearance that was ever known in England. Not content with her own salaried musicians, the queen hired eight prominent theatrical singers and instrumentalists for this performance, six of them foreigners, and paid them lavishly from the privy purse. We may also be quite certain that Anne, despite the strict embargo imposed upon her subjects, served fine French wine to her guest. The Lord Steward's papers in this building include a legal opinion about her importing French wine for her family, a ruling she sought after a boatload of such wine, purchased in Rotterdam by her agents, was seized by the customs. Less than two years later, the young man's father died in Vienna, prompting a discussion of protocol in the Queen's Privy Council. <coughs> it being debated in council whether the Queen and the court should go into mourning for the late emperor, the majority of the board gave their opinion against it because the emperors of Germany, assuming too great a superiority over the other crowned heads of Europe, had hitherto refused to mourn for the monarchs of Great Britain. But the imperial ambassador having promised in his master's name that the emperor would for the future go into mourning for the kings and queens of England, her majesty did the same for the late emperor. By honoring the Habsburg emperor, which was her instinctive preference, Anne believed she was securing his family's promise to honor her when her own time came, and there were also good political reasons for her decision to override her counselors and go into mourning. Charles III was now in Portugal, supported by British tr troops as he actively sought the Spanish throne. 
Leopold's elder son, Joseph, the new emperor, had given assurances that all the promises his father had made to the Allies would remain in force, so it would be unwise to risk offending him by appearing to disregard his father's death. In addition to these diplomatic considerations, Anne was probably considering domestic politics as well. She still remembered her outrage when William stopped her from putting her apartments into mourning for her father, and she was insisting that such decisions were now hers to make, whatever her advisors might think. By refusing to accede to the majority, she was reminding her courtiers, most of them up to their elbows in a hotly contested election, that she retained personal prerogatives as queen and would not hesitate to use them. In 1708, Prince George lost his long battle with asthma, dying in Kensington Palace with his wife at his side. With some difficulty, Sarah persuaded Anne to go with her to St. James's, saying that she might go away privately in my coach with the curtains down and see nobody. But the queen remained concerned about the treatment of her husband's body. On the way to St. James's, she asked the duchess to send to my lord treasurer, that's Godolphin, and beg of him to take care and examine whether there was room in some vault to bury the prince in at Westminster and leave room for her too. In her narrative, Sarah calls this request a very extraordinary thought and expresses surprise that Anne ate regular meals while nursing George and grieving for him. For the Duchess, who had grieved long and hard when her son died in 1703, refusing to eat or sleep and embracing the role of the melancholy beauty, being like other people meant being like her. She was clearly unable to understand the very different way in which the queen experienced and expressed grief. Anne's training as an heir to the throne, with its emphasis on formality and dignity, was a factor in the way she dealt with death, and she evidently found the process of planning George's funeral therapeutic, though Sarah utterly failed to grasp that fact. Before the prince was buried, writes the Duchess, she passed a great deal of time looking into precedents that she might order how it should be performed. The records of the committee appointed to plan the funeral include two complete lists of the order in which the mourners should proceed into the abbey, in which it is clear that there has been careful consideration of the protocols dictating that barons' eldest sons, for example, should precede earls' younger sons. Although she did not attend the committee's meetings, the queen was clearly involved in making these plans. Sarah, however, thought Anne's interests in such matters was unusual and not very decent. The Duchess also misinterpreted a touching note Anne wrote to her requesting particular precautions when her heavy husband's corpse was removed from Kensington to the painted chamber at Westminster, where he lay in state for a few days before the funeral. I scratched twice at dear Mrs. Freeman's door, that's her code name for Sarah, writes Anne politely, as soon as Lord's treasurer went for me, in hopes to have spoke one word more to him before he was gone, but nobody hearing me, I writ this, not caring to say what I had to say by word of mouth which was to desire him that when he sends his orders to Kensington that I desired, he would give directions that there may be a great many yeomen of the guards to carry the prince's dear body, that it may not be let fall, the great stairs being very steep and slippery, failing to catch the tone of pathos. Sarah describes this message as a little note at which I could not help smiling, expressing disbelief that the queen would be concerned that the dear prince's body should be shook as he was carried out of some room, though she had gone long jumbling journeys with him to bath when he must feel it and when he was gasping for breath. What Sarah did not know, but Anne probably remembered, was that these very steep and slippery stairs had been damaged when Queen Mary's body was carried out of Kensington Palace in 1695 an order for mending the steps of the great stairs that was broke in carrying the queue's body down, 
suggests that the yeoman dropped her coffin, a, a memory that would certainly have given Anne reason to fear a similar mishap. I did see the tears in her eyes two or three times, continues Sarah, and I believe she fancied she loved him, but his na her nature was hard and she was not apt to cry. If she had seen the diplomatic correspondence Anne undertook after George's death, Sarah might have gained more insight into Anne's ways of expressing grief. The queen insisted on writing these letters herself and composed them in French. While diplomatically correct, they are full of personal feeling. In a letter to the States General, for example, she expresses her desire to remain silent and withdrawn while acknowledging the powerful sense of duty that makes complete withdrawal impossible. This dreadful misfortune burdens us with a sadness so intense that we would willingly remain in profound silence if the close ties which we have with your state did not oblige us to communicate everything that happens to us by the will of God, be it good or evil. And to the King of Denmark, George's nephew, she writes in her own hand, significantly dropping the royal we. As he had been quite indisposed for some time, the anticipation of this disaster should have prepared me to bear it with more fortitude but I find myself obliged to admit to your majesty that the loss of such a husband who loved me so passionately and so constantly is too burdensome to bear as I should. Even here, writing informally to a member of her husband's family, Anne expresses her sense of duty. She should have been prepared and she should now find a way to bear her burden of grief. As Anne's own health grew more and more precarious, the issue of the succession loomed large. According to the Act of Settlement of 1701, passed after the death of Gloucester, the Hanoverian Protestant line was, designed, was designated to succeed. And Whig politicians attempted to make that outcome more certain by urging the queen to invite the Electress Sophia, her son Georg Ludwig, or his son Georg August, to reside in England. In April of 1714, the Hanoverian envoy, Baron Schutz, went to Simon Harcourt, Anne's Lord Chancellor, and demanded in Sophia's name a writ of summons for the electoral prince, in effect, an invitation for the future George II to take his seat in the House of Lords as the Duke of Cambridge. As a matter of protocol, this request was difficult to ignore, as Anne had granted that title to the prince as a courteous gesture in 1706. I never saw Her Majesty so moved in all my life, writes the Earl of Oxford, reporting on the cabinet meeting at which this matter was discussed. She looked upon it that she is treated with scorn and contempt, and she will not believe that he could have any orders for it, but must be imposed upon by the advice of some angry people here, read the Whig party. Harcourt duly issued the writ, but his covering letter to Schutz emphasizes the queen's displeasure, and Anne herself acted firmly against the offending envoy, declaring him persona non grata and forcing him to leave her realms. She followed up in May with a letter of her own to the electoral prince's father, the future George I, in which she treats this proposal as an affront to her sovereignty. I cannot imagine that a prince who possesses the knowledge and penetration of your electoral highness can ever contribute to such an attempt, and that I believe you are too just to allow that any infringement shall be made on my sovereignty, which you would not choose should be made on your own. I am firmly persuaded that you would not suffer the smallest diminution of your authority. I am no less delicate in that respect, and I am determined to oppose a project so contrary to my royal authority, however fatal the consequences may be. This letter is more than a protest by a queen determined to retain her dignity. It is a warning to George about his own future sovereignty. By telling her likely successor that he is sure he would not suffer the smallest diminution of his authority, Anne is advising him to cling to his royal prerogatives. 
aware that the enthusiasm with which the Whigs supported the Hanoverian succession masked their belief that a foreign monarch might easily be turned into a ceremonial figurehead, leaving the politicians free to run the country. While reminding the elector that she has given on all occasions proof of my desire that your family should succeed to my crowns, and nonetheless insists that it is not possible to derogate from the dignity and prerogatives of the prince who wears the crown without making a dangerous breach on the rights of the successors. Fearful of death, Anne neglected to sign her own will and thus died intestate. But in keeping with her lifelong interest in forms and ceremonies and having the right order at installments and funerals, she left directions for her funeral, instructing the Lord Chamberlain to issue his warrants and give such directions as may be needful, pursuant to what was done at the funeral of His Royal Highness Prince George of Denmark. Remembering the days she had devoted to planning the details of her husband's funeral, she thus established that ceremony as a model for her own. Always mindful of her most humble attendants, the Queen also ins instructed the Lord Chamberlain to draw up a list of such inferior servants as are not in a condition to put themselves in mourning so that they would not incur a ruinous expense. The attention given to protocol at the funeral would have pleased her. Uh, there's a notice from the Earl Marshal in the newspaper that gives precise instructions about which groups are to assemble in which chamber. According to orders issued by the Privy Council, the body was brought from Kensington to Westminster in a hearse covered with purple velvet, same kind of cloth she had worn in France at the age of five. The bills for the funeral, carefully compiled by the Lord Chamberlain's office, showed that the coachmaker provided a large new vehicle made entirely of oak, in addition to the velvet cloth attached to the hearse by 1,000 darkened nails, he paid for 23 yards of purple velvet to cover the coffins. For those who arrived at Westminster Abbey on time, the wait was long as the ceremonies did not begin until 10 p.m. Part of the uh, official account tells us that the royal corpse was born under a canopy, once more, of purple velvet and that the great guns of the, tire, of the tower fired for every minute while the service was going on. Um, the crown that was carried by the ceremonial officer, which would be deposited in the vault with the body, was actually made of tin, then covered with gold paint. One small economy in a funeral that cost 10,579 pounds, eight shillings and eight pence, well over two million pounds in modern money. Louis Theobald, whose poem on Anne's death was one of the first tributes published, provides a compact and accurate tribute in a single couplet. Oh, she was all a nation could require to satisfy its hope or large desire. Anne's unfailing attention to courtly ritual reflects her acute sense of what her nation required of her as queen. Her fondness for ceremony, which the Duchess of Marlborough and many modern historians have dismissed as an affectation, was rooted in her belief that ceremonies were a meaningful way to satisfy the hopes and desires of her subjects and a crucial way to insist on the dignity and prerogatives of the prince who wears the crown. Thank you. <coughs> This event was recorded live on 24th of July 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.